Hey there, Internet. I'm Holly Anderson, Director of Politics and News here at MTV. I'm still somehow existing outside of the podcast studio, living in that liminal space right before the end of the year. And since it's the end of the year, we're taking this time to look back at a couple of our favorite interviews we did in 2016 and bringing those to you in extended edition form. Last week, we heard from Hazel Sills and art pop music duo The Blow. This week, Congressman John Lewis. Lewis is 76 years old, and last month he won his first National Book Award for book three of a graphic novel trilogy he co-wrote chronicling his life and its many intersections with American history. Lewis is the only living keynote speaker from the famous March on Washington, at which Martin Luther King delivered his I Have a Dream speech. He was on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in 1965, when civil rights protesters were brutally attacked by Alabama state troopers. In 1987, he became the representative for Georgia's 5th Congressional District. He used to be my congressman. Today, he's a podcast guest. MTV senior national correspondent Jamil Smith met with Congressman Lewis, digital director and policy advisor Andrew Iden, and graphic novelist Nate Powell this summer, before their National Book Award win. I'm joined here today by the creators of the March book series, and book three has just come out. Congressman John Lewis of Georgia is here with me. But thank you very much. Artist Nate Powell, who illustrated the book. Hey there, thanks for having me. And Andrew Iden, who works in Congressman Lewis's office and is a writer of the book as well. Hi, thank you so much for having us. First of all, Congressman Lewis, I have to ask, uh, this is the end of the trilogy and a long storytelling journey for you. How satisfied are you with the final product? The first time I pick it up, I kiss the book (laughs) because it is so complete. It is so whole. It is so moving. It tells the story. Some of it is really painful, Um, but it's, it's finished. It is finished. And it's my hope the generation yet to come will have an opportunity to read, digest this book, and use it as a roadmap, mm. as a way to act, as a way to speak up and speak out, and get involved and get in what I call good trouble, necessary trouble. What does that necessary trouble phrase mean? That when you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have an obligation a mission and a mandate to do something, to say something. You cannot afford to be silent. Gentlemen, I want to ask you the same question I asked the congressman. You're at the end of this journey too. You were along with him the whole way. How satisfied are you with what you see now going to print? Well, uh, I think we're all just sort of reeling and adjusting, you know, I mean, even from the release of the book itself and from seeing the printed copies a couple of weeks ago, uh, we've sort of adjusted to the creative challenges going from the first book to the second as sort of the potential scope and scale of this project expanded and sort of we, we wrote and drew the second book recognizing that we had to pay a lot more attention to anticipating decades of future readership. Um, and I'll be the first one to say that going into this project, we knew that this would be a little bigger than some other comics 
and definitely that I've worked on, but we really had no idea what the potential scope of this could be. And once we worked out our process, the third book uh, had so many more creative and editorial demands and also had demands in which, you know, once we were getting over this threshold of, you know, answering the question, are comics legitimate as literature? Are comics right. legitimate in the classroom? Is it a legitimate memoir? Uh, we, we were glad to play a part in kind of squashing that. But then the next challenge is, with, especially with, the, the, with books two and three, meeting up with the demands at every turn in recognizing that these are books that are being used in classrooms, making sure we're conforming to historical guidelines and classroom guidelines, uh, making things as intimate and powerful but as accurate and responsible as possible. So March Book One was the first book I ever wrote. Mm. Um, and it was the most terrifying process I've ever been through. Um, <laughs> you have such a sacred responsibility when you touch John Lewis's story, when you touch the story of the movement. You don't want to leave anything out, but you have to tell a good story so that people read it and they're engaged and they don't fall apart with extraneous details. Um, one of the biggest challenges for us is that people have different accounts. People say different ha things happened at different times, and when you're trying to sort through all of that, how do you decide what's right? One of the great advantages we had is that this is the first set of books about this much time in the movement that had access to the primary documents. Because of the digital uh, changes in the last five or ten years, so many of the primary records were all made available online. And so when we had a question, we were able to actually go directly to the historical record. So if there was a meeting and we needed to know more about it, we went to the meeting minutes and mm -hmm. we knew who spoke and what position they took. And that way we were able to create a vivid picture that painted all of the characters instead of just focusing on one or two or three or four. And then at the end, you have to ask yourself, am I showing everyone's contribution? Am I explaining to the reader and to the people who may be inspired by this exactly how messy and how many people had to contribute, had to go through pain, had to suffer in order for the society, for the culture, and for the movement itself to get to a point where they could um, make that great leap. And, you know, now I, I look back on it and it's like 600 pages and, I mean, my 20s are over and <laughs> it's, um, I, I, I don't think I'll ever do anything more important than this. I want to get to the comic book form, and I'll start, Congressman, with the you know a different comic book that you read when you were about seventeen years old, Martin Luther King and the Montgomery Story. And uh, Andrew, I know you did your master's thesis on this book, but first, Congressman, can you tell me what that you know what that book did for you, what effect it had on you? The book Martin Luther King Jr. and the Montgomery Story. I read it when I was about seventeen and a half or eighteen. It changed my life. I heard of Martin Luther King Jr. when I was 15 years old. I heard of Rosa Parks. And I met Dr. King in 1958 at the age of 18. I met Rosa Parks. The drama of Montgomery, but the pickup of fun, a comic book. Uh, some people used to call them funny books. <laughs> so you're gonna <laughs> uh, to pick this little book up, it sold for 10 cents. Mm. 12 pages or 14 pages? 14. 14 pages. I digested. And it inspired me. It's, and I said to myself, if the people in Montgomery can do this, maybe I can do something. Mm -hmm. And 
Maybe I can make a contribution. Then I heard Dr. King speaking on her radio. Right. And seemed like he was saying, John Robert Lewis, you too can make a contribution. You can get involved. <laughs> so you was you felt like it was a personal narrative. Andrew, I want to find out, you know, you reading it several years afterwards, what effect did it have on you? When I first heard about it, I was working on the congressman's campaign. Mm-hmm. And everybody's laughing at me because I said I was going to a comic book convention after the campaign was over. <laughs> and the congressman used it as this tool to stand up for me to say, no, you know, don't laugh at him for that. There was a comic book during the movement, and it was very influential. You know, I started reading comics when I was a kid. My, my father was actually a Muslim immigrant, and he left when I was very, very young. And so I was raised by a single mother. And my mom kind of sl- encouraged my comics reading because it was reading, but also it was a refuge for me. Um, it was a place where you sort of read about justice when you're angry that your dad left and that, you know, the world doesn't make sense anymore. And so I'd read them all my life and and nothing seemed more fitting to me than when the congressman tells me about this. And then he starts telling me all these stories and I'm watching him tell the stories about his own involvement in the movement with the kids, how he was in the sit-ins and the Freedom Rides, the March on Washington, uh, Freedom Summer, Selma, all of it. And I'd never heard that as a kid. It meant so much to me just hearing that as a staffer. What about if I'd heard that when I was a kid? Um, Because, I mean, let's be honest, comics back then were white guys in tights. Right. right. It was not. There weren't. There weren't. There wasn't a diverse issue. I mean, women were flat. You had to go looking for Luke Cage. You had to go looking right. for Black Panther. You had to go looking for uh, Storm and X Men. You know, I, I get you. Yeah. I hear you. So it just he seemed like the perfect person. And then here, this comic book had been done before. Maybe it could be done again. Nate, I want to ask you about um, the moment in which, uh, you know, comes around the time the convention, 1964 convention is depicted in book three. And, you know, it's argued that it's the turning point for the movement for civil rights, not Montgomery, not Selma, not the March on Washington, not the bombing at the church. Why was that such a pivotal moment in the storytelling? And, you know, how did you feel like graphically you needed to depict that? I understood on a, a cognitive and historical level uh, what Congressman Lewis is saying when he's reflecting upon it being, in his opinion, the turning point of the movement. But it wasn't until really drawing that sequence, seeing it laid out, it was actually laying out the convention floor, working through their script in which, despite all their efforts uh, to, to push themselves into a position of having a voice with the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party at the convention, despite playing by every rule like arriving at the gates to find the doors shut on them. Only then was I really able to understand precisely how that can be construed as the turning point. If you pick up book three, you realize it's much bigger than everything we've done before because really it's two books. But we did the two books together so that all of the readers, all the young people, all the people who are trying to understand this history, understand how the Freedom Summer and the convention are so deeply embedded in what happened in Selma. People forget that many of the aspects of the Selma campaign were laid out in response to the church bombing in Birmingham. And what's so important for people today to understand is that it wasn't linear, that it was messy, it was chaotic, it went one way, it went the other, people had competing ideas, people pursued competing ideas. And that's okay, because the people who were able to persevere through that and then go back to Alabama to take that defeat and turn it into fuel, they are ultimately the ones who built the new America because they 
showed us what courage is and then had the courage to go to Selma. And we'd have to show how that played out because we're trying to dispel a lot of these, uh, we call it the nine word problem. Most students graduate from high school Mm -hmm. knowing nine words about the civil rights movement. Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, and I have a dream. And that's it. Right. And we don't want to just tell them who the people are. We don't want to just tell them what happened. We want to show the process by which it formed itself. A lot of young people, all that history taken into account, are opting not to vote in this election. They're, you know, their preferred candidate may have lost, and maybe they've lost faith in the government to address the needs of their communities. What, and I want to hear from everybody on this. I'll start with the congressman. What can they take out of these books? I think out of these books, young people can understand and must understand that we have success, we have failures, but we never gave up. We never gave in. We never became bitter. We didn't hate. We continue to press on. And that's what we're saying. There's some ups, there's some downs. And when you're not down, you must have the capacity and the ability to get up and keep going. First time I got arrested, I knew somehow in some way we would succeed. To go on a freedom ride, to be beaten and left bloody and unconscious, to be beaten on that bridge in Selma, mm-hmm. have a concussion. I thought I was going to die on that bridge. But somehow, in some way, I live to tell about what happened. And I've seen some of the fruits of the labor of so many people. And people must understand that. You cannot give up. You have to be persistent and keep pushing and press on. We were singing a song on that bridge as we crossed that bridge. And we were finally marched from Selma to Montgomery, pick them up and lay them down. And I think March is saying in effect, pick them up, lay them down, and march on. Gentlemen? Well, I'd, I guess I'd like to speak from <clears throat> the context which sort of lent me uh, part of my social conscience as a teenager and also the means by which to express myself. Uh, I come from the underground, you know, do-it-yourself punk rock subculture, and it has deeply influenced my life. Uh, as we've all grown into and through our 20s, our 30s, our 40s together, um, you know, all, typically sort of populated by a lot of folks on the far progressive left, along with like real and armchair anarchists and socialists and disaffected libertarians. I feel like I've I've lost a little bit of patience for the recurring arguments against voting itself. Uh, but particularly with the last five years of work on March, my patience gets a little bit thinner each time. I'm like, boo-hoo, like parts of mainstream politics are a sham, they're a game. Do you understand? You, for most of you, you just have to get up your, and make sure you're registered and then go take 45 minutes and uh, you know, hopefully do a little homework before that and figure out what's good for your town, your neighborhood, your state. Boo-hoo at your disillusionment with the process. Like, 
there's very real blood spilled for you to be able to spend your lunch break casting a vote that may or may not directly affect you, but definitely directly affects millions and millions of other people who are your neighbors. Andrew? I spent 10 years in professional politics and eight writing comics. I grew up in Atlanta. The congressman's been my congressman since I was three years old. And even in Atlanta, a place where they see every day someone who sacrificed almost everything so that each and every one of us could register and vote. You still see dismal turnout in special elections. You, you see tur- turnout in presidential elections barely cresting at 60 or 65%. How are we going to get the people who represent us in office if we don't vote? The biggest challenge for me, I think, in looking at all of this is that on the Hill, they, cal- they, they plan for that. They know you won't vote, so they don't care. Mm. That's part of the political calculation. If you want to change their calculation, then you have to vote. You have to change the numbers. They're going to send the money to where people do vote because that's how they stay in office. So if you want them to send money in your community, vote. If you want them to to listen to what you have to say, you have to vote. I said from time to time that the vote is precious. It's almost sacred. It is the most powerful, nonviolent tool or instrument we have in a democratic society, and we must use it. I want to ask you all a little bit also about Donald Trump, Um, not necessarily his latest gaffe or misstatement or offensive gesture, but what he's doing to the culture of the United States, the damage that he's doing. What's your view? And I'll start with you, Congressman, on the overall effect that his campaign is having on America. I must say that I have followed every presidential campaign since the campaign of President Kennedy of 1960. I have never seen or witnessed anything like this. I think he's dividing the American people. He, um, it's not good for America. It's not good for our standing in the rest of the world. To divide people based on race, a color, a religion, a sexual orientation, it's just, it's just wrong. And I would like to think that we have made much more progress, that we've come much farther, to have someone like a Donald Trump to emerge as the nominee of a major political party. Mm-hmm. John? My father was a Muslim immigrant. When Donald Trump started talking about banning Muslim immigrants from this country, I grew my beard out. My mother hated it. She never wanted me to look particularly Muslim. She thought if I grew my beard out that, that people would know, right? Don't make it hard for yourself. Don't let people know. But this is even when you were a teenager. This is even when I was a kid. Right. This is all my life, really. I mean, I started being able to grow a beard at 16. Let's not kid. Um, I but, can tell. <laughs> so I grew it out because, you know, what the, what the congressman talks about with nonviolence, I think sometimes seems abstract to people. But for me, it was a mission on the Hill to sensitize people because they they don't know Muslim immigrants. And for the most part, a lot of us just keep our heads down. But if I can engage someone in conversation, someone who maybe does support Donald Trump or at least isn't speaking out against him, and I can show him the, the fear that I have that we may end up getting treated like the Japanese and put in camps if Donald Trump were to win the election, 
a legitimate concern with this sort of rhetoric. Yeah. Then maybe I can turn that tide with the people who are in my community. Maybe you you guys are not the ones to tell this story, but there should be, you know, one would think a story told about the women's struggle for these similar kinds of rights. I want to ask intersectionally um, how, you know, women obviously play a major role in March. I want to ask more about like, you know, how do you feel like that story should be told? And frankly, should it be a comic book? Well, that's a wonderful question. Um, it's a great, it's a yeah. great question. Um, if I'm totally honest, there's an annual that comes out by the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund that's going to come out on election day, and they asked me to submit a short story. Nate's actually drawing the cover, and the story I chose to write was the story of Victoria Woodhull, who was the first woman to run for president in 1872, and she was the first woman to own a brokerage on Wall Street, and she was also the first woman to, uh, her and her sister actually co-owned a newspaper in New York City. And so when she's running for president, she's got this preacher in um, Brooklyn, I believe, who was chastising her for um, saying, you know, this free love and, and women's rights, it's, it's hogwash. But at the same time was having an affair uh, with another man's wife. <laughs> so her paper printed it. And as she's running for president, they arrest her and put her in jail. And she's, this is four days before the election. And she spends election day in jail. So the story I wrote was her experience, just those, those four pages, I didn't have a lot of room, but it was her arrest and what it was like for her to first go to jail. Just a small moment. But it raises this unbelievable historical parallel where every time a woman has run for president, every time she's pointed out the hypocrisy of men, they've tried to throw her in jail. Lock her up, lock her up, Congressman. Even in the civil rights movement, there were so many unbelievable women. They never, ever received the credit that they should have received. They did all of the, and I cannot say it, they did all of the dirty work, hard work. Some people think that Martin Luther King Jr. idea was to have a boycott. It was a black woman, a teacher, who said we should boycott the buses. You had people like Fannie Lou Hamer, the Delta, Mississippi, some people know Rosa Parks, they know Daisy Bates in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. But I were Ruben R. Smith, Diane Nash, countless individuals, Stephen McClark, during all of the work, paving the way. And maybe, just maybe, there should be a graphic novel dealing with the contribution of the women of the civil rights movement, to tell their story, the pain, the hurt, to raise the children. Some are working as maids, but when they left those kitchens, those homes, they made it to the mass meetings. And they put their bodies on their lines also. Well, you have your next assignment, gentlemen. <laughs> on it. <laughs> Thank you very much, Andrew, Nate and Congressman Lewis. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
That was MTV's own Jamil Smith talking with Congressman John Lewis, Digital Director and Policy Advisor Andrew Iden, and graphic novelist Nate Powell. To finish off the first year of our show, we're going to hear from MTV News social justice correspondent and poet-in-residence Marcus Ellsworth one last time. Fittingly, his piece is about being suspended in the timeless space between this year and the next. Five, four, three, two, one. (sighs) So we will inhale our last breath of the year. In a moment outside of time, on the precipice of midnight, just before a new era comes crashing in with the shouts of millions echoing across the joyful dark, we will dance to the death of this year. We will toast to the birth of the next. In between, there is a space where the old and the new shall pass each other. The departing year, walking with every joy and regret, will not leave with all it brought. It will hand the weight of this year and every year that has come before into the infant arms of the new calendar. Perhaps they will nod to one another, the elder wishing to lend wisdom to the younger, preparing time's child for that which they cannot control but will bear the blame for. A warning that they will be a witness to the best and the worst of the world. But there is no time. There is only a passage. People are holding their breath for the next tick of the clock and cannot wait forever. The battle-worn sage wonders what this child will be. The child stumbles forward, laughing and innocent, We begin to form the words heralding this arrival, our voices raised as one in every language, welcoming all that is yet to be. We promise to be better. We remember how we could have been better. With kisses and songs, we celebrate our survival. Through anguish and ecstasy, for all of our fury and love, we are still here to scream above the march of time with our first breath. Happy New Year. That was Marcus Ellsworth in Tennessee. I'm Holly Anderson for The Stakes in Los Angeles. And we'll meet again, probably, in a shiny new year we hope is an improvement upon this one. Stay as safe as you can out there, take care of each other, and see you entirely in hell, 2016.